Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. China's rising. So the foreign policy of the United States won't succeed if it turns out to be to prevent China's rise. What we want to do is to encourage China, as it does gain further capacity, to use that capacity in constructive ways. We want to shape what China does in the world and how it does it. I don't think we're in the right place. Uh, We may have been too optimistic about bringing China in as a partner. Foreign policy has pendulums, like everything else, and I think now the pendulum is swinging too far the other way. To talk about a Cold War blithely, either the inevitability of one, the reality of one, that could happen, but nobody should welcome that. Iran is an imperial country, and by that I mean it has a vision of the region and a vision of its role that goes beyond its borders. What's happened is we put all this pressure on Iran without an articulated purpose. What I wanted us to do, and the administration never did, was say, hey, here's what we are prepared to trade. We will lighten up on sanctions if you accept the following, say, in the nuclear realm or the missile realm or in some other realm. The biggest question is, what is our definition of success here? What is our goal? We continue to put pressure on Iran without a clear purpose. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Throughout his career, Richard served at both the State Department and at the Defense Department. He was a special assistant to President George H.W. Bush and a principal advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell. I recently had a chance to chat with Richard about the entire range of national security issues. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Richard, welcome to Intelligence Matters. You know, you're one of the most, I think, you're one of the most knowledgeable people in our country on foreign policy and national security. So I think it's terrific for our listeners to get to hear your thoughts on a whole range of issues. Well, I would describe you the same way. So uh, possibly both of us are right. <laughs> All the other possibilities. Yeah, neither, one, yeah, neither one of us is right. <laughs> So, Richard, I'd love to start with some strategic questions and then take you on a tour of the world, if that's okay. Sure. So, first strategic question is, I would love to hear how you would tell the story of the arc of American foreign policy from the end of World War II to where we are today. What's changed? 
if it's changed, why has it changed? What were the big muscle movements, inflection points, et cetera? How do you, how do you think about that? How many days do we have for the answer? Yeah, I know. So, so pr- probably about two minutes here. Dean Acheson, who was the American Secretary of State after World War II uh, under Truman, you know, wrote his memoir, and he immodestly, but probably accurately, described it as present at the creation. The United States emerged from World War II as first among not just equals, but unequals in the capacity department, and essentially put into place institutions, relationships to try to structure the post-World War II world. And in part succeeded, various international institutions and so forth, but there was a, a second set of structures or order that came into being, which was the Cold War. So for four decades after World War II, you had this American-led world, largely of uh, anti-communist countries, Mm -hmm. some of which were democracies, alliances, international institutions that coexisted with a Cold War world that had its own rules and in many ways also structured international relations. That lasted, as I said, for four decades till roughly 1989, 1990. And for the last three decades, the last 30 years, we have been first again, first among unequals in many ways, but we've had to contend with everything from the rise of China, the alienation of the former Soviet Union, of Russia, the dispersion of power around the world, proliferation to places like North Korea, before that, uh, Pakistan, uh, India, and, and so forth, the rise of all sorts of new technologies that again put capacity in lots of uh, hands, social media, what, what have you. And I think what's what's new in in recent years is that until a couple of years ago, I would say probably uh, certainly to the Trump administration, most American presidents, if I can use a sporting metaphor, might operated within the 40 yard lines from Truman through Obama might have been on the right side of the field, might have been on the left side of the field, but basically bought into this post World War II order of American leadership, alliances, international institutions. I think with Barack Obama, you saw some questions of uh, moving away from it simply because he thought the costs were too high, began to dial it back. And under Mr. Trump, there's been a major acceleration. And he's, he's really the first president who's an outlier. So rather than being part of the Truman through Obama uh, line, he represents something different, doesn't believe in free trade, questions the value of alliances, questions the value of, of multilateralism. Quite honestly, based on my own conversations with him, questions the value, the, prop, the foreign policy proposition that American leadership in the world is worth it. So he represents a departure. And just to end up, I think the real question going forward, is he the aberration? And then we come back to something like what we've seen, or does it turn out that the last 70, 75 years is the aberration Mm -hmm. and that history begins to resemble more what it looked like before World War II? That's the big question. So what do you think the answer to that question is? Is he the aberration or does he represent something that's more fundamental to what's going on in American politics and how Americans think about this? I know what I hope the answer is, obviously, that we continue to carry out most, if not all, of our traditional role. I fear that's not going to be the case. Uh, I think that Trumpism is alive and well in the country. He's as much a reflection as he is a cause. And I think the the post-Trump Republican Party will take on or can carry on many of these features, not all, but, but many. And we're seeing elements of it in the Democratic Party. If you, re, if you watch the Democratic debates, or you know, I work at the Council on Foreign Relations, we sent a questionnaire to all the Democratic candidates, gave them a dozen questions. If you, you read the answers on Afghanistan, you read the answers on trade, 
there's surprising overlap between most of the Democrats and elements of Mr. Trump. And again, I think they're reflecting the uh, intervention fatigue felt in this country after Iraq and, and Afghanistan, understandably. I think they're also reflecting a frustration that things haven't been as good at home, the stagnation in middle class incomes, and there's a tendency to scapegoat foreign policy, scapegoat trade, and so forth. Uh, so uh, my concern is that even after Donald Trump, even if it's less extreme, next decade or even longer of American foreign policy may still represent a significant pulling back from the sort of role that uh, we've played for 70 years and I believe served us well. So if you were standing in front of a group of Americans who believe all of what you just said or pieces of what you just said, how would you make an argument to them of why American leadership is so important? I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, Two ways. One is I would explain the connection between what happens in the world and the quality of life in the United States. I think most Americans see foreign policy as foreign. I would make the argument that foreign policy is anything but foreign. We learned it the hard way on 9-11. We learned it every day, whether we realize it or not, economically. If a, a Zika epidemic breaks out in parts of Africa, it could reach the United States. Refugees, climate change. What I would try to do, first of all, is make the case that foreign policy matters, that you can't separate how we do as a society and as an economy from what happens in the world. That would be point one. And then point two, I would make the case that what we need to do, the good news is it's affordable. If you look at the level of national security spending during the Cold War, it was at a level that was roughly uh, the share of GDP, the share of our economy that it represented, was roughly twice what it is now. And we did pretty well then. So my argument would be we have to act in the world out of self-interest, and the good news is we can't afford to do what we need to do. Probably if that didn't convince them, I'd make one other argument, that our shortcomings at home, which are real, whether it's infrastructure or uh, opportunity, public education, health care, that those things do not come. They're not because of what we spend on foreign policy. You can blame foreign policy for a lot, but you can't blame foreign policy for the fact that we spend twice the average of other developed countries on health care. And the last I checked, we're not twice as healthy and we don't live twice as long. We spend a lot on public education. We just don't get our money's worth. So we need to fix what's going on at home. One of my previous books, at the risk of plugging a previous book, was called Foreign Policy Begins at Home. There's lots of things we can and should do. We're just not doing it. And the fault doesn't lie in our foreign policy. The fault lies in our domestic politics. And if we can fix those things, not only can we make the country stronger from a national security perspective, but we can also make the public more willing to let the U.S. lead in the world. Amen. And it's one of the reasons we do have to sort things out at home, because my concern is, It's not just that we won't have the resources if we don't sort things out. We won't have the bandwidth. If we are divided as a society, if we're divided politically, we're not going to be able to come together to deal with it. We're going to also be simply too distracted. People are going to say, that's a luxury. we got to fix what's wrong here at home. So that's, again, it's another argument why it's essential we get it right here at home. Okay, so with all that as backdrop, let's kind of go around the world. And I'd love to start with China, which I think is the big enchilada here, particularly over the long term. I think that's a mixed term. metaphor calling is, China the is, big enchilada. It is, it is. So what do you see as our national interests with regard to a rising China? How should we think about that? And then how should we position ourselves given what we need to achieve here, given those interests? I think the operative word here is rising China. China's rising. So the, the foreign policy of the United States should not be and won't succeed if it turns out to be to prevent China's rise. What we want to do is to encourage China 
as it does gain further capacity to use that capacity in constructive ways. We want to shape what China does in the world and, and how it does it. Uh, if you will, the, the principal focus of American foreign policy when it comes to China ought to be the foreign policy of China. And that means to garner their help in dealing with North Korea, to discourage uh, any adventurism on their part when it comes to Taiwan or the South China uh, Sea and so forth. We, we want to try to shape uh, what, what China does and where we can, great. Where we can't, we then have to think about uh, how to respond. And uh, a side part of that is that we can't expect foreign policy to give us all the answers. And by that, I mean, if we're worried about, say, what China's doing when it comes to 5G, the answer can't be, let's try to stop China. How about we do more? Right. How about we do better? And that's about, why don't we increase the amount of federal spending on basic R&D? Why don't we do certain regulatory things that would open up certain capacities for the civilian sector? Why don't we do something different on immigration to get more talent in or to stay in this country? So we need to, we need, it's important not to ask too much of our China policy for creating a context in which we successfully deal with, with China's rise. So based on what you said, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but based on what you just said, I would assume that you don't think we're in the right place at the moment with I, I regard think- to... How we're dealing with China? Uh, the short answer is I, I don't think we're in the right place. Uh, we may have been too optimistic about bringing China in as a partner, uh, uh, to use the phrase, a responsible stakeholder, to integrate them into our, our world. I think we were right to let them in, for example, into the WTO. I don't think we monitored their behavior closely enough. But I worry now we're overshooting. Uh, foreign policy has pendulums, like everything else. And I think now the pendulum is swinging too far. The other way, to talk about a Cold War blithely, either the inevitability of one, the reality of one, that could happen, but nobody should welcome that. Uh, A 21st century defined by a U.S.-Chinese Cold War will be a much worse century. It would make it far more difficult for us to cooperate on regional or global challenges. It increases the what we have to spend on defense. It increases the odds that at some point the Cold War will be hot. So we ought to, if we can, avoid it. No, obviously it takes two to avoid it. So I want a relationship with China where we try to influence their behavior, but we also protect the possibility and reality of limited areas of cooperation. So we're going to have a relationship that's going to have multiple personalities, but that ought to be our goal. So what would your conversation be with them if you were trying to convince them of having this thing come out in the right place? The conversation I would have with China, indeed it's a conversation I have had with China when I ran the policy planning staff uh, at the State Department, my opposite number was the gentleman who happens to be China's foreign foreign minister right now, Wang Yi. And the other person I work most closely with is China's ambassador to the United States. And this was the conversation we had all the time. What sort of an international system do we want to bring about? What is a post-Cold War international system? How do we deal with global challenges from terrorism to proliferation to modernizing international financial arrangements to dealing with climate to dealing with global health? I want to bring China in to a set of uh, relationships. That'd be the conversation. And I would make the argument why it's in their interest. To do so, it's not a favor they do for us. This is not a only good for America world. This is a world that they also would benefit from. And I'd also make clear if they decide not to do that, not only will they pay a price, but if they act in ways that we believe are contrary to our interests, they will leave us no recourse but to push back, whether it's with uh, Taiwan or the, the South China Sea or on certain trading, you know, in, in the area mm-hmm. of, of trade, if they adopt behaviors that we think are simply unfair or, or inimical to our interests. So 
basically lay out the menu. They're going to have to make decisions. Now, implicit in this, let me say one other point, and I apologize for going on so long. I think we should show concern about what China does at home, but I don't think that can or should be the first thing in, in, in our relationship. I don't think we will succeed. And this is uh, where I, I worked for Bush 41. And you know, at the time of Tiananmen, I was in the White House. And I think the feeling was we criticized them for what they did. We sanctioned them for what we did. But we also protected a larger right. relationship. Right. And I think that ought to be our, our, our navigation going forward. So, Richard, let's stick with East Asia, North Korea. No administration has been able to deal successfully with North Korea's strategic weapons program, its nuclear weapons and its long-range missiles. How do you think about the threat from North Korea? Is it bigger than what I just said, right? And how do you assess perhaps how the Obama administration approached it? And how do you assess President Trump's novel approach? And what might you do differently? Well, you're right. The policy towards North Korea has been a rare case of uh, continuity in American foreign policy. That's the good news. The bad news is successive administrations have failed to accomplish our Every single one. Every single one. North Korea continues to pose a significant conventional military threat to the Republic of Korea, to South Korea. But obviously what's new and different is the nuclear and, and missile threat. You know, this president, President Trump, came in and tried to shake things up, and he did it with his threats, and he did it with tighter sanctions, and he did it with his openness to diplomacy, and in principle, that was good. I think, essentially, he teed it up well, where there's been a a failure is after that, and I think this denuclearization or nothing approach is is misguided. I I believe we ought to keep to denuclearization as a long-term goal, but we ought to be open to lesser interim arrangements. We will will reduce the degree of the sanctions we put on you in exchange for certain limits on your capabilities. Uh, Because what's happened is by having all or nothing diplomacy, we now have nothing. And since then, since the president's begun his symmetry, North Korea is far more capable in the missile realm as well as in the nuclear realm. This isn't working. And we don't, as bad as it is now, Mike, I mean, just say North Korea now has an estimated, what, 30, maybe 35, whatever, nuclear warheads. Imagine a day in five or 10 years where they could have 130 and of greater quality on missiles with greater accuracy. We do not want to get to the point where North Korea represents an existential threat to the United States. The president keeps saying he's a patient man. He shouldn't be patient here. He should feel urgency. So the goal of the United States ought to be to cap North Korea's capabilities as a first step and then see how we can roll them uh, back those capabilities. So uh, I believe, again, he was right to get their attention, but he's been wrong in how he's done things since. Yeah, and he can actually, I think, I, I think he can actually use the relationship he's built, right, to push to get to those negotiations that you're talking about. I believe uh, he, he could too. I don't understand this, this insistence on our way or the highway. It, it's simply not working. And the North Koreans have also figured out that they don't face a threat of military force. A war on the Korean Peninsula would be horrific, as you know, better than most. And the sanctions are deteriorating. China, Russia, and others are working around them. And that's the history of sanctions. I've done several studies of sanctions. They rarely, if ever, accomplish big things. And over time, what they accomplish tends to go diminish. And we're seeing that with North Korea. So again, time is not our friend here. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Richard Haas. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? 
Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, Richard, let's jump to the Middle East and Iran. And I put the Middle East in there specifically because I wanted to start by asking you what our interests are in the region and then how you see Iran threatening those interests. Okay. Well, it's, it's a good place to start. I would say our, our interests in the region, and in no particular one, are still energy resources. We may be energy sufficient. We are not energy independent. And people keep, keep confusing those two words, but the energy of the Middle East is still critical for the world economy. And what happens with the world economy affects us. So again, no one should use the phrase energy independent. Uh, so we still have an interest in the production of Middle Eastern energy, oil and gas, and its ability to reach its uh, consumers. We have a real concern about terrorism, not seeing that terrorism uh, gains a footing, whether their goals are local or, or, or global. We have an interest, obviously, in proliferation and preventing it. Right now, there's one country in the Middle East that has nuclear weapons. That's Israel. We don't want to see a second, much less a third, a fourth, or a fifth. Uh, we'd like, I'd say those are our most important interests, along with uh, historic support for the well-being of, of, of the state of, of, of Israel. And then what about Iran's threat to all of that? Well, Iran is, is, is a threat to all those things in the sense that uh, we've seen the attack on Saudi oil. We've seen Iran's support for terrorism in all sorts of ways, carrying it out as well as uh, supporting it. Over a very long period of time. Over a very long period of time. This is uh, a sustained policy. It's, for them, it's one of their principal national security instruments. We've seen Iran's nuclear program and the potential of that for, for breakout to cross, cross lines. So Iran is a significant threat, and I think it's important to understand Iran. Iran is not a status quo country. Uh, Iran is an imperial country, and by that I mean it has a vision of the region and a vision of its role that goes beyond its borders. And it's realized that to some extent. If one looks at Lebanon, that is success. If one looks at Syria, that is considerable success. If one looks at Iraq, in some ways the great strategic beneficiary of the Iraq war, one of the reasons I was against it when I was at the State Department, is I feared that what, what has happened would happen which is that Iran would, would benefit from no longer having a, a country like Iraq to offset it. So Iran has been the great strategic uh, gainer of the last couple of, of decades. And the challenge for us is how do, we, how do we contain it? How do we put certain limits on Iranian uh, influence in the region? And it's hard because our actual or would-be partners in many cases, aren't able to play, to play that role. And for understandable reasons, we want to put a ceiling on how much we are involved. And that is the tension in American foreign policy towards Iran. There's a bit of a debate, and, and it's played out in the pages of Foreign Affairs, which is the Journal of the Council, on whether Iran is an imperial country or whether it's a revolutionary country. Where do you fall in that, in that debate? Revolutionary in the sense of spreading extremist Shia I actually see Ideology. them as the same. I see it as that's part of their imperial role, that, again, they're not self-satisfied to make Iran. Their goal is not to make Iran great again. That might be one of their goals uh, since the Islamic Revolution, but their goal is to make the, much of the region in their image, and they do it in all sorts of ways, and that's a, a goal I oppose. So that means we have to work with local states to strengthen them, to make them less vulnerable, to push back, and we have to try to shape Iranian behavior directly, and that's where sanctions diplomacy, 
potentially military force uh, come in. So how would you assess the Obama administration's approach to Iran? Well, the Obama administration's approach I'm critical of. I thought the 2015 nuclear agreement was too generous in many ways. The so-called sunset provisions were way too short. I don't understand at at that moment why we didn't get a a longer-lasting agreement. Why 10 years? Why not 25 years? Why not 50 years? Why not permanent? I think we should have pressed for something much uh, longer term. And I think part of the reason we didn't is the administration had the, I don't even call it naive or misguided or just incorrect view that integration with Iran, dealing with Iran, would get it to moderate, to change. Funnily enough, similar to some of the thinking about China that many administrations have had, that integration would bring transformation. We haven't seen it with China. We haven't seen it with Iran. So it's time to go back and rethink some of our approach to foreign policy and that. So my, my view, the previous administration got an agreement wasn't the agreement I would have uh, wanted. I think we could have been and should have been more ambitious. And I think the assumption underneath it that time would solve the problem of Iran's orientation was simply, there was no reason to believe that. All right, same question about the Trump administration. Well, Trump administration began with a critique of the Obama administration, but almost like healthcare, has thrown it out without a clear substitute. I don't, I don't see a, a, a plan B. So it got rid of the agreement. But then what? Now, uh, one area that... I underestimated was the impact of unilateral American sanctions. Those have had more of an impact on Iran's economy, its ability to export oil than I would have, than I, than I did an- anticipate. But I don't see the administration has decided what its purpose is. Okay, so we've put pressure on Iran, but towards what end? Now, for some, it may have been regime change. Well, that is not going to happen. It did not happen and will not happen. For some, it might be that the Iranians would simply say, uncle, we can't take the pain anymore. Please tell us, America, what you want us to do ain't going to happen. So what's happened is we put all this pressure on Iran without an articulated purpose. What I wanted us to do, and the administration never did, was say, hey, here's what we are prepared to trade. We will lighten up on sanctions if you do the, if you accept the following, say, in the nuclear realm or the missile realm or in some other realm. We haven't done it with North Korea, other than saying we all, the only thing that's good enough is denuclearization. We're making a similar, we've made a similar mistake with Iran. We haven't basically said, We are prepared to ease sanctions in exchange for these behavioral changes. We never, ever did that. So instead, we just, we basically carried out economic warfare against Iran. And what's now happened is over the last few months, Iran has responded two ways. One is with physical warfare, military warfare against us and our... our Trying to impose a cost on us for our behavior. Exactly. Saying you're going to use the economic instrument of war. We're going to use the drones or we're going to use missiles or we're going to use what have you, mines in in, in the waterway. So there's one. And second of all, they've begun the process of breaking out of the constraints in the 2015 nuclear agreement. So we're at a point here where we have to decide what it is we want. So we can put more pressure on Iran economically if there's much we haven't done, or we can use cyber, or we can use military force. But again, Iran is going to retaliate. What still is missing from U.S. foreign policy is a purpose with Iran. The, we haven't told ourselves, we haven't told the Iranians, here's the deal. Now, they may push back and say, we don't like that, this, that deal. How about this deal? Fine. The last I checked, that's called diplomacy. That's why uh, you, know, you, have, you have diplomats, presumably, who do that. But at the moment, that is the, the biggest question is, what is our definition of success here? What is our goal? We continue to put pressure on Iran without a clear purpose. So, Richard, last big issue, Russia. How do you think about Russia? How do you think about it as a threat to our interests? How do you think we're handling it? How do you think we should handle it? 
I actually think we're going we're going to have a big debate one day about Russia, and it's going to be a historical debate, and it's going to look at the it'll be a version of who lost Russia. People will look at the end of the Cold War, when Soviet Union transformed you know, into Russia. Basically, what the Soviet Union had two empires. You had the external empire in Eastern Europe, and you had the internal empire that was the Soviet Union itself. Both unraveled. And the hope was that we could have a good relationship with, with Russia. And it hasn't worked. And the question is, why not? And there's one school of thought that said that was wishful thinking. You were never going to have it given Russian political culture, history, interests, and the rest. And the other would say, we blew it. We weren't generous enough on the economic side. And with things like NATO enlargement, we kindled or rekindled nationalist sentiments in, in Russia. I don't know, Mike. I don't know the answer to that question. But I was not a great enthusiast of, of NATO enlargement. Uh, I thought there were other ways we could have structured and stabilized post-Cold War Europe. That said, we are where we are where we are. Uh, I think you know, Russia is now an outlier under Mr. Putin. I don't think things will get materially better so long as he's there because he, he wants no part of what we used to call the liberal world order. He sees it as a threat to his continued rule. So my view is we push back wherever we have. We make NATO stronger. We help uh, Ukraine. But the one area that I don't want to see unravel is the nuclear area. So, I, again, almost what I said about China before, we don't have the luxury of a all-or-nothing relationship with, with China. We need to have areas of cooperation, even if we have large areas of competition. Same with Russia. We may disagree with Russia here, there, but not everywhere. Right. We do not want what happened with the intermediate-range nuclear agreement to be a precursor for, uh, for the long-range. You know, we don't want to be spending the dollars on that. We don't want the risk of that, of a whole new wave of nuclear modernization and, and competition. So my view, again, with Putin is let's have diplomacy. Actually, I never would have kicked him out of the, G, the G8. I don't think diplomacy should be seen as a favor we bestow on others. Keep him there. Have him there and disagree with him. It's not a favor. It's a tool we it's use. A, exactly. It's a tool. Mm -hmm. Since we don't under, I don't understand why we have so much trouble wrapping our, ourselves around the idea that diplomacy is a tool. It's not for sissies. It can be a really hard-edged tool. Anyhow, uh, but I would maintain, I would have serious negotiations on strategic nuclear forces. I'd be talking to Russia about the Middle East, even though we disagreed about Syria. We may not disagree about everything. And they matter. They matter for North Korea. They matter for Venezuela. For all these countries, again, we ought to, where we can protect or carve out limited areas of, of cooperation, we should do it, even if under Mr. Putin, the overall character of the relationship is going to be pretty pretty hostile. So, Richard, two institutional questions. Sure. The first is, how would you assess the health of our national security institutions? The short answer, <laughs> once when Brezhnev was general secretary, he was asked, Comrade Brezhnev, what is the health of the uh, Soviet economy? And he said, good. And they said, well, could you say a little bit more? Like <laughs> two words, and he said, not good. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> That's where I am about... Uh, America's national security institutions. State Department has been decimated. Sorry to say it, but I think that will be Rex Tillerson's legacy, and I don't think Mike Pompeo has done nearly enough to turn it around. John, and it was underinvested in before that as well, right? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, John Bolton did a real number on the National Security uh, Council. The intelligence community, I worry that its relationship with policymakers is not what it could and should be. Probably the Pentagon and the military side of the Pentagon is, is probably the best off of all of, of, of all of those. But as a whole, 
I, I worry about the state of the institutions. I worry we're not attracting the young talent we, we should. And I really worry about the lack of a systematic process. You and I are both veterans of more interagency meetings than either of us would care to, to count. But process protects. Right. Pro- process protects. It makes sure that presidents and principals see the options, that the, the intelligence is married to the policy, that implementation and execution are disciplined. And I worry about the ad hocery, the informality that we're seeing in government right now. On more than one occasion um, in those meetings, somebody would say, hey, have, have you thought about this, right? And the this was really important. And if they weren't there, you would have missed the this. 100%. And again, uh, even if it slows you down a bit, that's a price worth paying. In my experience, you always, almost always pay a price for a, a lack of process. You just, you don't think of things as you say, implementation doesn't match decision. Uh, you rush to judgment. I mean, the fact that the Iraq war, for example, in 2002 and three, was launched without a formal interagency meeting that really carefully and systematically looked at all the options that people weren't thinking systematically about the aftermath and what that would require, that tells you something. We should not, we should not conduct foreign policy on the fly. Okay, three final questions, yes, Richard. Which president do you admire the most from a foreign policy perspective? Well, one I worked for is uh, the 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush. I was at the White House for all four of those years. And I just think that he and Brent Scowcroft, Jim Baker, and others, Bob Gates, uh, deserve tremendous credit. One I didn't work for uh, is Harry Truman. And so if I said, who are the, if you asked me who are the two best foreign policy presidents of the post-World War II modern era, I would say Truman and Bush 41. And what made them so good? Truman, in the sense that, was willing to think big and to break with the past in so many ways, to basically have the United States permanently involved in the world, was a fundamental break from the tradition of American isolationism. He surrounded himself with great people, the Atchison's and and others, and was willing to take the country in places they didn't want to go. Well, a lot of that applies to Bush. After the Cold War, he basically said, we still have things to do in the world. He said this will not stand when the Iraqis invaded uh, Kuwait, surrounded himself with extraordinarily talented people and made sure the uh, system worked. And at times, uh, you know, again, took the country in places they didn't want to do and did it in a generous way. It wasn't, uh, to put it bluntly, an American first approach. It was one where we we worked with others. We had the coalition that dealt uh, with the, the Gulf challenge. He, he tried to bring the world and the country uh, along with him to a, a considerable degree. And of those folks who you worked for directly, who did you learn the most from about foreign policy? I would probably say Brent Scowcroft. It's hard, though, because I'm so close to him. And he's one of, was and is one of my favorite people on the uh, planet. And it was partially the issues, but less the issues. The learning was more from the process. To watch the way Brent ran the interagency process, that's where I really learned about how we dealt with these big personalities how they trusted him in a way that uh, leaks didn't happen. They actually, Things were so good that a Jim Baker or Dick Cheney wouldn't demand to see the president. They knew that Brent would represent their position faithfully to, to the president as good as they could do it and that the president would hear the views and, and so forth. So to me, it was it, what, what I learned from Brent was how to run a system with, with real integrity. That, that was the... To me, the, 
you know, the, the great learning and, you know, but it was also, you know, it wasn't just Brent. You had Baker, you had Cheney, you had uh, Gates. I mean, what a, Colin Powell. Mm-hmm. What a team, what, huh? What, what a constellation yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, uh, of talent. Yeah. And last question, and maybe we've talked about this already, is when it comes to the security of the country, what worries you the most? Well, that's easy. It's, 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 we hinted at it before. It's not China. It's not Russia. It's not a specific threat out there. It's us. I worry about our disunity and our dysfunction. And I worry that we're not taking the world as seriously as we ought to take it. We're not devoting the, the resources. We're not structuring the decision-making process. I worry that, uh, in part, you know, we don't teach it. We're, kids are graduating, you know, my pet peeve, kids are graduating from the best universities and schools in the country and don't understand this world they're about to enter. So that's what worries me. It's that we have a society here at home that increasingly un- doesn't understand why it's in our interest to continue to play a large role in the world. And, uh, and that's, what, that, that's what worries me more than anything else. Richard, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Mike. That was Richard Haas. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.